Yesterday, Major League Baseball caved to fear and lies from liberal activists. They ignored the facts of our new election integrity law, and they ignored the consequences of their decision on our local community. In the middle of a pandemic, Major League Baseball put the wishes of Stacey Abrams and Joe Biden ahead of the economic well-being of hardworking Georgians who were counting on the All-Star game for a paycheck. That was Georgia's Republican governor, Brian Kemp, responding to the extraordinary decision by Major League Baseball to pull this year's All-Star game out of Atlanta in response to the state's controversial new voting law. The move by baseball to effectively boycott the Peach State comes as major corporations, Delta Airlines, Coca-Cola, Dell, and others, have publicly condemned the Georgia law for restricting ballot access, ensnaring the companies in the kind of political controversy that they usually try to ignore. For progressives, it's a sign that companies and sports leagues are now willing to speak out and use their muscle to stand up when fundamental rights, such as voting, are threatened. But for Republicans like Kemp, it's the latest evidence of cancel culture and wokeness run amok. We'll discuss the corporate and MLB campaign against the Georgia voting law and what this could mean for the Republican Party's future with our Yahoo News colleague John Ward. And then we'll talk to Palm Beach County's outspoken state attorney, Dave Arenberg, about the vaccine rollout in Florida, the legal troubles of Congressman Matt Gates, and much else on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. And we are joined by our colleague and regular skullduggerer, John Ward. John, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. So I have to say it is a bit rich to hear Republicans complaining about companies being political when they hit these same companies up all the time for campaign donations and super PAC contributions and much else. On the other hand, I'm not sure it's a good thing for Major League Baseball, much less these companies, to um, start getting involved in the political process. It seems to me that's opening up a, a can of worms on many different levels. Um, John, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, Mitch McConnell, I believe, said something to the effect of corporations shouldn't speak about politics, but keep giving us money which somebody on Twitter then responded to by saying, wait, isn't the whole crux of the Citizens United decision in 2010 that political donations are a form of speech? Um, and so there's there's definitely a schizophrenia between the having your cake and eat it too position that McConnell is expressing there. And I think it gets to a deeper identity crisis within the Republican Party as they try to decide which direction they're going to go in the future and who their voters are going to be. Uh, Dan and I have talked a lot. He's 
really been driving this conversation uh, uh, about a, a congressman from Indiana named Jim Banks, who put out a memo this week saying that the Republican Party needs to embrace being the the party of the working class. But he's taken this anti-corporate stance, but kind of like accepting political donations and then trying to tell corporations not to speak about politics. You know, what are Republicans going to do? Are they going to raise taxes on corporations? I mean, they have, in, I believe in Georgia, removed tax breaks that have cost um, companies like Delta a lot of money. But to really make corporations pay, so to speak, you'd, you'd probably be talking about raising taxes and the ideology. And You're the talking Republican about the Georgia lawmakers, Republicans who are talking about punishing these companies well, and for Mitch the McConnell stand that they're taking. Talking. Yeah. yeah. And Mitch McConnell's talking about that. Well, yeah, look, they, they, in Georgia, uh, Republicans uh, tried to rescind a lucrative fuel tax, which would have been a big problem for Delta, but in the end they didn't. I think Republicans in the Senate, people like Josh Hawley, are uh, beginning to talk about removing the antitrust exemption from the MLB, saying that they are a business, not a sport, which would be disastrous for Major League Baseball. But the question is um, that I think you're pointing to, John, is how much of this is real and how much of it is performative. You know, they if they're tr- they're trying to straddle this line where they can continue to have a, the kind of relationship with big business that keep the corporate uh, donations flowing, but at the same time, uh, you know, double down and on um, working class voters and try to win the working class vote away from um, from from Democrats. So we well, yeah, but, but but all that's about what the Republican Party is doing in response. Let's talk a little bit about what the companies and what MLB did. And, you know, this does strike me if if not unprecedented, because I know it was done with Arizona years ago on Martin Luther King holiday, but it's pretty rare and it does immerse these companies in, um, you know, a political dispute that I'm not sure is good for them or for the public at large. Well, I mean, to the earlier point about political donations, companies give a lot of money in politics. And I I realize that they spread it around a lot of times and they play both sides. But it's not as if, you know, corporations and big companies stay out of politics. They just generally limit it to being behind the scenes through donations and lobbyists. I think Maybe a finer point to put on what you're saying is that when corporations start getting into taking positions on, you know, hot issues of the moment, it might put them in a in a vulnerable spot because this is not their job to be, you know, up to date on the latest developments in public policy and legislation as it moves through a legislature. And I think in Georgia, where they got caught in the middle, they got caught in the middle of something here where you have years and years of an awakening in the country about uh, systemic racism. You have a lot of education going on about the ways in which injustice has been perpetuated through institutions, through systems and voting uh, being one of those things. And then you have a lot of you know battles between Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams over the last decade, uh, where Abrams has made credible accusations of voter suppression against Kemp. Uh, and then you have the last year of uh, former President Trump just um, straight up lying about uh, voter fraud to try to overturn an election. All of that is the context that drove, I think, a lot of this backlash against the bill. But then at the last second, the bill was um, – 
watered down and a lot of the most offensive provisions were taken out. And that has left this odd situation where Republicans are now saying this bill is not Jim Crow 2.0, like they are saying. And there are some ways in which even the New York Times is pointing out the bill does some things. It does make voting harder in some ways. It does make uh, some forms of voting easier. So it has created a situation where there are these corporations and, uh, and corporate leaders who I think are not sure how to navigate this complicated environment. Well, let me let me jump in because sometimes go back to the corporations for a second. Uh, a lot of times, the reason the corporations are doing this is not because they're necessarily stepping in in politics, but because they're responding to what their actual employees are telling them. So, when you hear corporations saying we're not going to go into North Carolina anymore because of its its position on the kind of bath the bathroom issue or gay marriage or a variety which which Georgia did, what they're saying is our employees tell us if we try to do business in this state, they won't come work for us or they're going to be very unhappy. And you could think the same thing about exactly what MLB did. MLB didn't so much decide to pull the all-star game as much as it probably acknowledged the reality that if it tried to hold the all-star game in Georgia, a lot of the players weren't going to show up or were going to decline to show up. So in, in many ways, I think what corporations are doing is acknowledging what their workers, what their employees are are telling them. Victoria, is is it? I mean, at the end of the day, you know, they're they have to think about their shareholders. They think about the bottom line. They think about profits. Um, and is there a sense in which this is a slippery slope in a a moment um, in our country um, and really around the world where there is an expectation that people, institutions, companies will take stands um, on the issues of the day if they are taking stands constantly, there is also a danger that they're going to alienate their consumers um, and this is going to be bad for business. They must be – so they are in some sense caught uh, between their their consumers and their, and their workforces, I would think, um, unless – I don't know. What, do, what, what yeah, yeah, exactly. It's why it's why you see a lot of people now sort of like I, I think it was like, you know, former President Trump who said he's gonna boycott Coca-Cola now or something because of Coca-Cola's reaction to what happened in Georgia. But then of course he was, you know, seen drinking a Coca-Cola almost well, immediately or, after or, he Right. Yeah. Or, uh, the, yeah. the 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 governor of Texas who said he was gonna uh boycott uh it wouldn't go to the uh baseball game in Texas. Uh, he was boycotting it. And of course, uh, it was completely packed. Uh, I mean, you know, those boycotts against, uh, you know, baseball are not going to be effective. And I don't think they'll be effective against Coca-Cola. Yeah, the the consumer boycotts these sort of uh, don't don't tend to uh, they they don't tend to stick, right? Uh, but the the corporations know that they do have the power to kind of uh, react to what's going on, and they they do have the power to sort of issue statements about their opinion or to kind of alter their campaign contribution, their campaign contributions. And you know, just to scroll back, not even a hundred days after January sixth, a bunch of companies said they would no longer give campaign contributions to um, the various members of Congress who uh, voted against certifying the election. And yet, even now, the evidence is that some of those corporations have begun giving money despite their promises in January. So I, I just don't know how long any of this sticks. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, and look, there's also the the federal legislation, H.R. 1, now in the Senate, whether that's going to um, move forward. And are these companies now in a position where they have to support this, the, the, the federal legislation, which, you know, is controversial on its own? Right. I mean, there are provisions in there that reasonable people can have reasonable differences about. But, you know, from a distance, it looks like, you know, the companies are, to use a frame from the 60s, being mow mowed uh, to, um, uh, you know, into a corner where they're going to end up alienating a lot of people as well. I mean, you know, my question is, look, John, you've been studying this law, the Georgia law, and Victoria, you have as well, whether, you know, I think we can agree it's not as egregious as it was in its original form, that some provisions actually do expand weekend voting, for instance, throughout the state. Uh you know, you know, this is not the assault on fundamental voting rights, uh, you know, that it's being labeled as in some quarters, including by the president who's called it Jim Crow. I just want to go back, though, to, I guess, the context of the last several years in Georgia, the last year nationally, and then what, you know, the Republican Party was doing over the last several months uh, using Trump's lies about the election last year to justify making it harder to vote. And a lot of Republicans were saying, well, our voters are concerned about the integrity of the election. And that concern had been ginned up by lying. And, and so then they were going to cut back and restrict voting. You know, at the same time... But, but I mean, just on the, on the cutback voting, I mean... You know, yeah. it expands weekend voting, right? Does it? Not? I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the Georgia bill in particular. I, I'm sorry, I should have been more clear about that. I'm talking about across the country. There are several state legislatures that are the focal points for this. Arizona is one. Georgia is another. I mean, a lot of this work is being done by Victoria's organization, the Brennan Center, where they're compiling these bills. It's also important to note that a lot of these bills are not yet law. These are all proposals, and many of them will not become law. But I think what Democrats were seeing was a push by Republican legislatures throughout the country to try to cut back on voting. Again, some of that was actually just cutting back on expansions that had been hap that had been done during COVID. So there is this debate that is a little bit more in between uh, the end zones, less so between Jim Crow and you know total freedom to vote and more so between how much expansion do we want versus how much do we want to go back to pre-covid voting but that is the context that created what happened with the Georgia bill um so i mean you could just go on and on and on and talk about that but i think that's really important to understand and, and, and mike even though the the Georgia bill maybe uh, with one hand slightly expanded voting hours in small counties not necessarily in the more populous ones. It, it also imposed new strict ID requirements for absentee ballots. It keeps election officials from mailing out absentee ballots to all voters. It, it severely restricts the ability of uh, election administrators to use drop boxes, mobile voting centers. Uh, it's got that notorious provision barring offering food or water to voters waiting in line. It it has a host of new barriers. And one of the things that I think um, has 
not gotten enough attention and is problematic um, is that it shifted a lot of power from, you know, secretaries of state who run elections to legislatures um, so that so that the legislatures, you know, for example, can invalidate ballots um, and do a lot of the things that uh, Donald Trump wanted them to do. Right. Uh, during Although the, uh, let's just remember they didn't do what Donald Trump wanted them they didn't to have do. The, well, in many uh, cases, they didn't have 12th. the power Republican to. Republican controlled legislation. No, I mean, we talked about this the other day. What the Trump people wanted them to do was replace the, the electors, you know, in Michigan and right. Georgia. But that was, you that know, was crazy. Arizona that was with, crazy with, stuff. This is stuff yeah. that is yeah. what, what they did in Georgia uh, is far short of, you know, sending a its own slate of electors uh, to to the House. This is stuff that they will be able to would be able to do, um, you know, in, in the next election, pre- presumably. But I wanted to get back just to um, the GOP for a second here and how it's using this issue to tr- kind of consolidate its strength with working class voters, uh, because that Jim Banks memo that you referred to, John, I think it was it was uh, the subject line. It, it was a memo that Jim Banks, who's the head of the Republican study group and kind of the intellectual architect of post-Trump uh, populism. Um, and it was a memo that he was sending to Kevin McCarthy. And the subject line was urgent, cementing GOP as the working class party. And and part of that strategy is going after so-called woke capitalism and attacking elite corporations. In addition to it, it's, you know, a lot of what we saw during the Trump years with anti-immigration, you know, nativism, protectionism, economic nationalism. But I'm just curious, John, whether you think that that is a smart strategy on behalf of the Republicans. And it may be a smart strategy, but may not, you know, over the long haul be an effective strategy. But I'm curious what you think. Well, I think this is going to be good grist for the mill for future articles at Yahoo News. I'm actually in the process. I haven't finished even reading this because I was just given a heads up that it was published. But uh, Matthew Continenti over uh, National Review wrote a piece very skeptical from the right of uh, Banks's memo, basically saying that that memo is more of a, a prosecution of culture war than it is of actual, you know, working class policy, because he points out there's very little mention of unions, uh, of trust busting, of the kind of um, you know proposals that Orrin Cass at uh, American Compass, a conservative think tank, uh, who I interviewed a couple months ago, have actually put out there. So it's a little long on rhetoric and short on you know actual proposals. Or right, unions, progressive taxation. I mean, what's right. interesting is the Biden administration is going to try to push through this uh, infrastructure. Uh, right. Huge infrastructure package and pay for it by raising the corporate tax rate, which no Republican is going to vote for. <laughs> you know, that's why I was talking about it being more performative than, yeah. you know, authentic. Or, yeah, by the same token, consider that no Republican is going to vote for the provisions that constrain campaign contributions from corporations. <laughs> right. Right. So corporate power is great until they uh, express a viewpoint. I mean, this all kind of the the whole thing with MLB moving the all-star game really fits more neatly into, you know, the narrative that conservatives are telling themselves about big tech. You know, we've got these 
powerful forces, these elites who are trying to eliminate us and eliminate our views and our way of life. Um, there is political potency to that, but I don't think they've really figured out how to make it durable and sustainable when it comes to a constituency. Well, we'll be watching your reporting on this, John. Do we? Uh, by the way, has MLB said where the All-Star Game is going to Co- go? Colorado, right? Oh, really? And is the Colorado legislature, what have they done on voting? Well, it's a Democratic um, legislature. Very, so it's, it's like very progressive. They so do all I don't know. Mail. This is going to be like, uh, you know, further. By the way, it's moving to Coors Field, not a corporation that's exactly well known for its liberal positions, is it? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I know. You know, we're going to get in a situation where, uh, you know, one chunk of the country is going to be out of bounds for respectable corporate presences, right? I mean, if MLB sticks to this position, well, they are sticking to the position, then you couldn't have the All-Star Game in Georgia. Well, you couldn't have it in Texas. You you know, you probably couldn't have it in, uh, in Florida or Michigan or any other state where there's a Republican-controlled legislature. Well, maybe. You know, maybe we are moving closer to what some have suggested, which is, um, you know, seceding um, <laughs> two countries. Right. Yeah. Well, we're we're certainly moving into a more polarized space. Uh, anyway, uh, thanks, John. And, um, you know, keep uh, reporting on this. All right. Good talking to you guys. All right. All thank right. you. We've now got with us Dave Arenberg, the state's attorney in Palm Beach County, Florida. Dave, welcome to Skullduggery. Mike, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. So uh, a lot to talk about in Florida these days. I want to start out with this um, big 60 Minutes piece on Sunday that suggested that your governor, your Republican governor, DeSantis, had steered uh, the contract for vaccine delivery to a particular grocery store change, Publix, uh, whose executives uh, had given $100,000 to his political action committee. Now, there's been a lot of pushback on this since 60 Minutes popped it. Uh, I'm asking you because they, they, the 60 Minutes centered it on Palm Beach County and said this was an example of the governor tilting the uh, vaccine delivery to wealthy people in Palm Beach County, excluding people of color. Did 60 Minutes get the story right? Well, Mike, I was interviewed for the story, but my interview was left on the cutting room floor. They got it right when they talked about the fact that the vaccines were being sent away from the public health officials to a for-profit supermarket chain. So in that sense, they were right that the state of Florida was, in effect, making the CEO of a private supermarket chain the de facto Surgeon General of Florida. But where they, I think, got it mixed up was to try to draw a direct quid pro quo, a pay-to-play scheme. Publix is a very prominent political player in the state of Florida, and they give lots of money to a lot of elected officials. It doesn't mean they were paying to get that special deal. I think the stronger argument would have been, hey, you gave all these vaccines to a private for-profit supermarket company that is not in every location, especially not in the poor uh, minority sections of the county. That's 
the more devastating argument than to focus on the pay to play. As I understand it, the Florida director of emergency management, who's a Democrat, says he recommended this the Publix deal to Santis's uh, folks, and that also the mayor of Palm Beach has said that this came from them, not from DeSantis, at their request. Right. But the county commissioner for Palm Beach County, who represents the Glades, said that she was not part of that meeting. She was not invited to the meeting. And so there is a dispute within Palm Beach County as to whether or not this was the governor's idea or this was the county's idea. But the bottom line is when they did this, they made Publix the exclusive provider of the vaccines in Palm Beach County. It wasn't just to supplement the healthcare district. It was to take it away from the healthcare officials and put it into the hands of a private for-profit supermarket chain that does not have locations throughout the county. So where do things stand now in terms of vaccine delivery in your, in your county? Well, now you have a lot more providers and the vaccines are plentiful. It's now open to everyone. The age restrictions are lifted and and we have a lot of vaccines. You can see the difference that a a chief executive in the White House can make by making this a priority instead of just leaving it for the states to have a free-for-all, a form of the Hunger Games. That was what was going on prior to Biden's uh, election to the White House. But fortunately, things have gotten a lot better. Let me ask you just more generally about the COVID response in Florida. COVID obviously became a highly politicized issue and no more uh, than in Florida. And you had these incentives for politicians to, on the one hand, maybe exaggerate how well they're doing or other politicians to blame the people in power for screwing things up. What What is your sense of the sort of the quality of the numbers that have been coming out of the the governor's office, um, and is there ev- has there been any evidence of of kind of cooking the books uh, in terms of the numbers? Is that something that um, your office has has looked at at all? There have been a lot of allegations that the governor has been cooking the books when it comes to COVID cases and COVID deaths. There was that row that the governor had with the medical examiners, where the medical examiners were putting out different sets of numbers in the state. They were showing higher numbers of deaths from COVID. So to remedy that, the governor stopped the medical examiners from publishing their data. I guess if, if you, uh, you know, close your eyes to the problem, it goes away. That was the philosophy. But since then, the medical examiners have been publishing data, although I believe the medical examiners are appointed by the governor, and so politics is getting in the way. There was a whistleblower, Rebecca Jones, who then later had her house raided by Florida Department of Law Enforcement officials, and she claimed that that was political because she was standing up to DeSantis and calling out his wrong numbers. It is a matter of debate, though, whether or not uh, her numbers are more accurate. But one thing we know for sure is that he has been slow in producing public records and producing data that shows how many deaths and cases there are in Florida. He has not been accessible to the media. by uh, He's refused to answer questions. And he is not great about complying with the public records laws. And so in that sense, uh, yeah, he deserves some blame. But as far as which numbers are correct, you know, we still don't know. Do, do you have any active investigations into Governor DeSantis? I just don't. Yeah, I'm not aware of any, but I'm just asking. We do not. We do. Not. OK. OK. Uh, I want to go back to the uh, public deal real quickly, if I could. Isn't isn't one of the arguments that's being made about it that while Palm Beach 
may benefit from this decision because there are plenty of publics you know in the in the county there are a large number of other counties scattered throughout uh, the state of Florida which are poorer or have uh, you know a greater percentage of the population that are uh, uh, African American or Latino and that there aren't a lot of publics stores there so the the decision that DeSantis made really benefits wealthy white residents of Florida and and really disadvantages is that is that is that the story behind the public's decision or is it uh, is it something else no I, I think that is a big part of the story but remember when the federal government first distributed these vaccines they gave the states the unlimited authority the full discretion pretty much and that allowed DeSantis to choose his own rules and the state of Florida was one of the few states that did not have a comprehensive vaccine distribution plan. That's the way DeSantis wanted it. That allowed him to pick and choose which communities got it, to choose publics if he wanted to. And one of the big controversies is that wealthier enclaves, like in Manatee County, there's a wealthy enclave that got the vaccines before anyone else and were given priority, where if you didn't live in those zip codes, you could not get the vaccine. There's another enclave in Key Largo where they got the vaccine before others. And so People want to know, is that illegal? And the answer is no, because the governor set up the rules and it is not breaking the rules he set up. And so, yeah, when you had people flying in from all over the the world to get vaccines in Florida, that wasn't against the rules either because the governor did not set up a residency requirement to obtain the vaccines. It was just that you had to be over 65. Hmm. Let me uh, ask you about uh, one of your uh, more prominent constituents in Palm Beach County, the former president of the United States, who seems to um, have a lot of legal issues around the country. He's under criminal investigation uh, in New York uh, over his finances. Uh, Fulton County uh, DA appears to be investigating uh, the events uh, after the election. Do you have a role to play when people want to serve subpoenas on the former president or uh, compel his testimony in some way uh, in other jurisdictions? Mike, we're in uncharted territory here. This has never happened. We don't have a lot of case law on how to prosecute former presidents. I I do think that the Manhattan DA, my counterpart up there, Cyrus Vance Jr., is going to file charges or indict the the former president uh, at some point this year before Vance leaves office. He's been working on that investigation for about three years. And you don't get to where he is now without having something to work off of. He's got something. And I think that decision will happen before he leaves office. So I anticipate a charging decision this year, and it most likely will be, I think, to charge. Now, when that happens, I can anticipate that Florida's governor may try to stop the extradition of the former president back to New York. Now, he doesn't have really any grounds to do so. It's really a ministerial duty to rubber stamp the extradition, but he may try to score some political points with his base by trying to stop it. I mean, after all, I thought that Congress's role in certifying the vote was ministerial on January 6th, and we saw what happened then. So so let's say he does. What happens then? Where does this go to court if it goes to court? Well, again, this is uncharted territory, but I can envision that the state of New York would have to file a federal action in Florida to require the former president to be extradited. I don't think it will be hard to do so because 
the only substantive grounds that I know of to prevent an extradition of one of our residents is that it's the wrong guy. It's a case of mistaken identity, which of course doesn't apply here. So DeSantis may try to win political points by trying to block the extradition, but I don't believe he can. And uh, a court ruling would then require the former president to go back to New York. Another complicating factor is that I don't believe the Secret Service will want any other law enforcement agency to put their hands on the former president. So we'll have to see what happens, but I think it will happen uh, most likely later this year, and any attempts to block extradition uh, will not work. Yeah, and it's not just uh, Cyrus Vance in New York. There's, as I mentioned, the uh, Fulton County uh, prosecutor who's investigating on the election fraud. And then there are all those civil suits all over the country. Right. right. But I think the greatest existential threat to the former president comes out of Manhattan. I, I'm not sure if Atlanta is going to be able to do anything, at least not before New York does it. New York is farther along. And I think that's really where former President Trump has to worry. Well, um, um, speaking of people who might have something to worry about these days, uh, there's uh, Congressman Matt Gates uh, from the Panhandle, who seems to be in some legal jeopardy. Now, you've been outspoken. I think you were on TV the other day saying that uh, uh, Gates could face life in prison over these charges. Now, we should preface this before we get into it. You don't know what the FBI and Justice Department has in terms of evidence against Matt Gates. Correct. I know about as much as you do, Mike. Right. And when I say up to life, it's up to life. Uh, he is facing, if he's charged with child sex trafficking, a mandatory minimum of 10 years in prison. But it could go up to life depending on what the evidence is and the aggravating factors. Right. I mean, what what would what would bump this up to, you know, up to life in prison? What charge would get you there, would get him there? There's a conspiracy involved uh, that could bump it up. The other charges could come into play in the conspiracy, like identity theft, because remember, Joel Greenberg is being charged with identity theft. There's wire fraud. Uh, there's campaign finance violations on top of all that. Also, I believe at the federal level, there's a special uh, enhancer for a violation of public trust if you are an elected official and you're busted. So there are a number of factors. Plus, when it comes to child sex trafficking, depending on what the details are, it could get up to life, depending on how bad the facts are. But and we don't know yet. So I say it's up to life. And I do think the greatest threat to Matt Gates may not even come in the investigation of him. It's certainly not in the investigation of the alleged extortion plot. That's a whole nother matter. But I think it's in the investigation of Joel Greenberg, the former tax collector for Seminole County, who has every incentive to flip on Matt Gates. Gates is the biggest fish. And it is a lifeline for Greenberg that Gates is brought into this because now he can tell all and he knows all. Ex explain the connection between the investigation into Joel Greenberg and the, and the Gates investigation, because I think a lot of people don't quite understand that. Joel Greenberg, the former tax collector for Seminole County, and Gates are good friends, and they're social friends, aside from being political buddies. And they, according to the reports that came out, that they were using the sites like uh, seekingarrangements.com and sugardaddy.com. And this is being alleged in news reports, so I don't have confirmation, but that they were using that to meet women and then paying for them in exchange for sexual acts. Now, 
one of the girls apparently was 17. Now, I think that is obviously the worst thing for Matt Gates because that takes you into the child sex trafficking laws. If they were 18 or over, then to have sex trafficking, you have to have force, fraud, or coercion. But if you are under 18 as a victim, you don't need force, fraud, or coercion. The laws are much broader, much more protective. And we now know that the girl in question in the Matt Gates investigation is under 18 because it's the same girl who is at the center of the Joel Greenberg charges. So wait, is Greenberg charged with having sex with the same girl that allegedly Gates did? Yes, and that's the key point here. How do we know that? How do we know it's the same girl? Well, that's all the reports that have come out. We it, Greenberg is being charged with uh, with child sex trafficking for a 17-year-old girl. And the reports are that it is the same 17-year-old girl issue with Matt Gates that the two of them both engaged in this comic allegedly and that they used Apple Pay and cash apps to compensate this girl. And all you have to show for child sex trafficking is that you enticed, you recruited, you transported, you harbored any of those things, a minor, for sex in exchange for something of value. So you don't even have to have sex with her to engage in child sex trafficking if you're the one who enticed the girl to have sex with Joel Greenberg. If you transported her, if you were the one at the airport and drove her to the hotel and left her there with Joel Greenberg, you could be charged with child sex trafficking. So when Matt Gates says, hey, here are my defenses. Number one, I never had sex with anyone under 18. Number two, let's say I never paid for sex. Well, you don't have to pay for sex or have sex with someone under 18 to be charged and convicted with child sex trafficking. So as a prosecutor who has has probably investigated similar crimes, although not this one in particular before, tell us what you think so far. What stage of the investigation are they in? How far, you know, based on you've, you've seen the evidence based on what's coming out publicly, how far along are they in the investigation? How soon does Matt Gates need to think about uh, whether or not he's going to be uh, standing in front of a judge facing a, 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 a pretrial hearing? I think this investigation is coming to a close. I think you will see a charging decision made imminently because the separate allegation of extortion has blown up. Matt Gates has been identified publicly as a subject, if not a target, of the investigation. And these are the kind of things that sort of happen when an investigation reaches its conclusion. The fact that Matt Gates has lawyered up and hired two prominent criminal defense lawyers shows you that he's expecting something to come down. So I think this is going to happen sooner than later. Is uh, Roger Stone in Palm Beach County these days? He apparently lives in Broward County. In Broward County. County South. Okay. Because he was um, apparently uh, a, uh, a friend of uh, both Gates and Greenberg. There's uh, been pictures on social media of the three of them together. And he's also been, you know, very much, uh, on the radar screen of the folks investigating uh, the uh, attack on the Capitol on January 6th. Do you have any insight into um, where the the feds are headed on that one? I'm not sure, but I think that the feds could, if they wanted to, pursue federal charges against Roger Stone, because even though he was pardoned for his convictions that he was, remember, convicted for obstruction of Congress 
threatening a witness. He was not pardoned for other things that could have been charged, like obstruction of justice. That's a separate crime. Or perjury. That's a separate crime. Obstruction of Congress is different than obstruction of justice. Separate, separate charge. Yeah. And threatening a witness is different than perjury. Separate charges. And if you're wondering, though, how could he be charged at the federal level when he was pardoned by the president? It's because the pardon was not very broad. The pardon was for crimes he was convicted of. And if you then ask, well, why wasn't the pardon much more broad? Well, I think the answer is that they screwed up. And it wouldn't be the first time you saw a screw up in the Trump administration. If only their uh, competence had matched their nefariousness, we'd be in a lot more trouble. Hey, Dave, let me ask you a question about y- y- your role as a, as a local DA, because uh, Isikoff and I, you know, for years covered the Justice Department. So we covered federal prosecutors who tend to be very circumspect about open investigations, whether it's their own or, or others. And you um, on this podcast and I think elsewhere, you know, predicted that uh, President Trump is going to be uh, indicted, that uh, Matt Gates' indictment uh, is imminent, that uh, the feds could pursue charges uh, against um, Roger Stone. What what are your obligations in terms of opining uh, on uh, on these kinds of investigations, and how does it serve the public interest for you to be talking about these things? I'm not saying it doesn't, but I'm interested in hearing your perspective on that. Yeah, before I did a lot of these media interviews, I spoke to my ethics counsel about what I'm allowed to talk about and what I'm not. I do not talk about any pending cases within my jurisdiction or pending investigations within my jurisdiction. But if there are cases outside the jurisdiction, then I was given the green light to opine. I do think it helps break down the barriers between the public and the criminal justice system. I I, I am worried that the people of the country are, are kept out of what's going on in the criminal justice system. So you have a lack of faith and transparency. I mean, the grand jury system is so purposely secret that you know it, it has a lot of mistrust involved. So I think what I try to do is to open up doors and allow people to take a peek in without violating my ethical requirements within my own jurisdiction. So I hope that helps. I, I pride myself when I go on these interviews to take these complex legal subjects and make them accessible to everyone who don't may not have a law degree. Well, that's good for podcasts. So, uh, <laughs> right. we, we like right. that. <laughs> if, if I can, I want to go back to the January 6th, uh, the Proud Boys, Roger Stone. Southern Florida seems to have a little bit of a cluster of uh, of Proud Boys activity. Uh, you, you not only have Roger Stone, who's been associated with it, the chairman of the Proud Boys uh, was based in Miami, not, not the county where you are. There have been a number of people from uh, the January 6th Capitol assault who have been charged from your area, including a former police officer. Uh, from northern Miami, North North Miami. I'm curious, we're reading a lot about what federal prosecutors are investigating vis-a-vis January 6th, but I'm curious, what are local prosecutors doing? There have been allegations that the Proud Boys and white supremacists have infiltrated police departments, um, are are very active uh, in law enforcement communities. What are you doing in the wake of January 6th? Well, we at the local level, enforce state laws. So if it's a federal crime, the U.S. Attorney's Office can prosecute cases. If someone from down here traveled to D.C. and committed crimes up there on January 6th, then the local U.S. Attorney, the federal prosecutor, can pursue charges, but not us state prosecutors. We're 
limited to state crimes. So if someone. Yeah. But are you are you worried that members of the Proud Boys are, are in your law enforcement departments now that you've got employees in your office who may be members of the Proud Boys or white nationalist groups? Well, if we ever had an indication that there were members of hate groups in our office, we would obviously take action. There is no such indication. But as far as law enforcement, that's a separate department. I do speak with the sheriff frequently, and he's aware of the fact that the the whole country is on edge about this and that white supremacist violence is the number one terrorist threat facing our country, not just domestic terrorist threat, terrorist threat. So he's on notice and he does a good job as far as, you know, they, they require psychological tests inside their department. That's something that prosecutors don't. We don't have as heavy of a psychological testing, behavioral health questions like law enforcement employees. But we are aware of our employees. And if there is a red flag, we're going to jump on it. Um, Hey, let me just take you back to uh, sex trafficking for a moment, because uh, it does occur to me that um, uh, your office had one of the most infamous sex trafficking cases presented to it some years back and declined to uh, prosecute. I'm talking this is before you were the state's attorney. I'm talking about the Jeffrey Epstein case, which was right in your backyard. And as I remember it, um, they uh, one of your predecessors refused to uh, uh, bring any charges against Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah, the Jeffrey Epstein case occurred several years before I got here to this office. I want to make that right. Clear. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I understand. But, uh, yeah. And I was I was a state senator back then and I was watching from afar what was what was going on. What you're referring to is is the uh, state attorney at that time, Barry Krischer, took the case to a grand jury and they came back with two misdemeanor counts and he was criticized for that. And then the feds came in, took it over, and then they reached this deal that was widely criticized. And I think the most controversial part was there was a uh, part of the deal that made it secret so that even the victims were not told of what was going on. They were totally cut out of it. And uh, the whole thing was a real cluster, as they say. That's a technical legal term. Uh, cluster. <laughs> you can say the whole term on this You can podcast. say it yeah, on this podcast. Can I, can I say that on referring on, to yeah. a cluster fuck is the term of art. You know what? I'm what still term. elected. And so, you know, we can't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But wait out. a second. Yes, of course, the feds took a lot of heat, the U.S. attorney, Acosta, for uh, having those provisions and not being tough enough on Epstein. But I believe you're predecessor there was the first guy not to aggressively pursue this case. You say, you know, went to two misdemeanors. We were just talking about Gates getting possibly up to life in prison. What what Epstein was doing far exceeds anything we've heard alleged about Matt Gates. Well, Mike, I am not going to defend any of the actions of anyone involved in the Epstein investigation. I think there were many mistakes made. Why did they drop the ball? Well, number one, the laws were different back then that a underage girl who is committing sex acts in exchange for money was under the law, a prostitute committing crimes today, rightfully that young woman is a victim. That child is a victim and the laws have been changed thankfully because that's the way it should be. And that's why, by the way, you see at the Matt Gates case, it's a 17 year old girl. She is not a prostitute under the law. She is a victim. So back then the laws were different. But I cannot put myself in the shoes of what the evidence that they looked at back then, except to say, you know, in retrospect, I think that definitely mistakes were made. I wish things were done differently because it has besmirched the 
uh, administrations of before, from before. And it wasn't just my predecessor, it was a predecessor three before me. But I, I do think that hopefully, at least on a civil matter, from a civil civil lawsuit matter, that some of the victims will get a measure of justice from the Epstein estate. They never, they will never get full justice because Epstein committed suicide before he was ever held accountable for all this. But it was disgusting. It was horrific. And I have, as part of my job as state attorney, I've released all documents relating to the matter, everything in our possession. I put them all on the internet for the world to see. But I think the bottom line is um, your office, before you got there, got rolled. Well, they took the matter to a grand jury and the grand jury came out with just two misdemeanors. And then the feds came in and the whole thing, as I said, I think was a series of mistakes and it was not justice. Right. Uh, I can say that. And for the record, it was long before you became state's attorney. So we should make that clear. All right, Dave Arenberg, I want to thank you for joining us and offering your legal insights. Uh, We will be back to you uh, if and when criminal charges are filed against uh, a Palm Beach resident um, uh, and an extradition request gets filed. (laughs) And look forward to returning. Love the podcast. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Thanks. (laughs) 